From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A space telescope that won't orbit the Earth but the Sun. The James Webb Space Telescope is about to launch to a position far, far away with a state-of-the-art optical system built by Colorado's Ball Aerospace, the same firm that got another space telescope, Hubble, working. How the launch of James Webb might transform our understanding of the universe. Then I ask a member of NASA's newest astronaut class what her dream destination would be. Okay, space station, moon, or Mars? We'll meet fighter pilot and Russophone Nicole Ayers of Divide, Colorado. Later, Coloradans are resorting to more extreme measures to make ends meet as housing costs here climb and Western books to give as gifts. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. NASA says it's one of the most ambitious and complex missions it's ever attempted. The James Webb Space Telescope costs $10 billion and could transform our knowledge of the universe. A rocket launches the telescope next week. Its optical system was built in Colorado by Ball Aerospace. Ball famously helped repair Webb's predecessor, Hubble, Mackenzie Listrup is general manager of civil space at Ball. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. So this telescope will reside a million miles away from Earth. That's nearly five times farther than our moon. And uh, James Webb won't orbit the Earth. It will orbit the sun. You're an astrophysicist. You're in the business of space science. I wonder if this blows your mind. It does indeed. Um, you know, you said that this is perhaps the, you know one of the most ambitious things NASA's ever done in space. I would argue on the science side, it is the most ambitious. Uh, this is addressing some of the the critical science questions of our age, and it really is a technological marvel. A technological marvel. Uh, perhaps we can talk about that in terms of its mirrors, its optical system. Uh, I'll say that NASA calls James Webb the successor, not the replacement of Hubble. Uh, For one thing, the Hubble still works, at least for now. Uh, And uh, Webb is looking at a different kind of light. What, What is the advantage of infrared in this case? Yeah, so the James Webb Space Telescope was really designed to answer some fundamental questions in in, astro- in astronomy and in physics. So uh, it's designed to look at the earliest galaxies and the earliest uh, you know luminous objects in the universe and to watch those galaxies evolve over time. And it's designed to uh, characterize the atmospheres of extrasolar planets to try to find habitable worlds beyond our solar system. Now, to do that, the infrared part of the spectrum is really useful for us. Astronomers use different wavelengths of light to probe different kinds of physics and phenomena. And uh, the infrared here is really valuable for a couple of reasons. One, 
is that the earliest galaxies, I mean, you know, they're, they're 13 and a half billion light years away. Um, and due to the effects of general relativity in part, those, the, the light from those galaxies, it actually like the wavelengths stretch out. And by the time they get to us, they're brightest in the infrared. And so we really have to have an infrared telescope to peer back into the earliest galaxies. Hmm. And then on the other side of looking at extrasolar planets, it turns out that some of the key interesting atmospheric gases and components are quite bright in the infrared and have really important signatures uh, in the infrared that can tell us about life habitability. What sorts of images will we get back on Earth once they are processed? So the, the images are going to be infrared maps. So it, it's going to look a little different than, you know, the optical color images that we see. Yeah. But if you've ever uh, looked at an infrared image, it's really, you know, kind of looks like a heat map. But you're definitely going to see um, images that look like, well, proto-galaxies and early galaxies. And we don't know entirely what they're going to look like yet. This telescope will be 100 times more powerful than Hubble, partly because its mirror is so big, 21 feet across. How do you get that into space? (laughs) That's a very good question. It was one of the biggest challenges uh, of the mission itself. So the reason it has to be so big is because we're looking at some really faint objects. You know, these these uh, these extrasolar planets, these early galaxies, really faint. So we've got to make the mirror as big as we possibly can, and that's why it's uh, it's 21 feet in diameter. It's broken up though into 18 segments um, that all fit together in kind of a honeycomb shape, and and that's because. You know, 21 feet across is definitely too big to fit inside of a rocket bearing. Mm-hmm. And so really it's designed to be able to be segmented and to fold up almost like a drop leaf table, right? It's the holiday season. And you can imagine, you know, our, our holiday tables, you've got the drop leaves on either side. That's kind of what it looks like. And then once it's in space, it will deploy. And that's how we fit it into the rocket. And this mirror is not like ones we have on the wall. Tell us about the reflective surface. Absolutely. So um, it's actually gold. It's coated in gold. It's a very thin, very thin layer of gold. But it turns out that gold is very reflective in the infrared. So it turns out that that's the best surface. But of course, we're not going to make a giant telescope made out of gold because that would be impractical and and heavy and so the the substrate of the mirror the kind of the the metal behind that gold surface is actually made of beryllium and beryllium is really uh it's very lightweight for its uh its other properties it can handle um, temperature variations it can handle very cold environments which uh the webb telescope will will be held very cold and it has just a lot of great properties that made it perfect for for webb but of course we, we actually coat it in that layer of gold for the reflectivity. Yeah, you talk about it being held very cold. I'm guessing that has something to do with its relationship to a solar orbit because it's next to, well, not next to, but at least closer to something that's quite hot. Yeah, it, it, that, that and... Uh, we're looking at infrared. And if you think about, you know, if you're using your laptop for a long time, the electronics get hot, yeah. right? They generate heat because they use power. And because we're looking in the infrared, if we don't keep this telescope cold, 
the heat that's generated by all the electronics in the instruments and in the motors, that would all basically wash out the signal from the astronomy objects we're trying to observe. And so to, to make sure that we have the, the best possible sensitivity to those distant faint objects, the whole telescope is held at about minus 370 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the operating temperature. And just for, for reference, absolute zero is about 460 Fahrenheit. And we're operating, you know, 110 degrees Fahrenheit above that. <laughs> so it's, it's Webb's own heat, actually, that might get in the way. But talk about the proximity to the sun and, and just how that heat and energy might affect things. Yeah, you know, we we uh, need to really protect from the sun. That is a critical piece of this mission. And in order to do that, we have this uh, five layer sun shield that is uh, that, it, that is always facing the sun, so that the telescope and the instruments are always protected from the sun. It's a it's a really ingenious design. I mean, the sun shield itself is. Um, about 69 and a half feet by 46 and a half feet. It's like the size of a tennis court. And uh, like I said, it has five different layers. And that outermost layer um, is going to be at about 231 Fahrenheit. But the innermost layer can operate down to about three minus 394 Fahrenheit. Wow. So you can see that we have this massive temperature gradient that goes from super hot to super cold. And that, again, was one of the technological challenges to Webb. Okay, so when Webb's predecessor, Hubble, launched in 1990, they flipped the on switch and everything was blurry. And (laughs) there was a mistake in the mirror, uh, which I'll be clear was not designed by Ball. In fact, astronauts on the space shuttle fixed it with Ball's help. Um, Fast forward to James Webb, which will be a million miles away. You know, there's no fixing it at that point, I gather. How how do you plan for that? Well, the the issue with Webb definitely will not happen. Or sorry, the issue with Hubble will definitely not happen with Webb. Mm-hmm. So Hubble had the issue where its mirror curvature was very slightly incorrect. And that slight incorrection made those blurry images. Now, the one of the benefits of this segmented telescope on Webb is that we actually developed at Ball um, these actuators, these motors um, that are on the back of each of those telescope segments. And those move mechanically and, uh, and flex each of the mirrors so that they all get aligned together extremely precisely. And so it also means that we can change that alignment oh. if there are uh, changes in, in the space environment, if, uh, the, if the telescope gets a little warmer and it gets out of focus, we can refocus it. So that is one advantage. Now, you know, the, the, other, um, uh, the other issue here is that, you know, we develop a lot of software, a lot of, of algorithms on the ground so that we can interact with the telescope and ensure that um, because we aren't going to be able to go and, uh, and fix it on orbit, that we have the ability to change some of the parameters on the ground. Okay, so there's some flexibility from afar, which is fascinating. How long does it take to communicate with something, and how do you communicate with something that's a million miles away? <laughs> yeah, as you said, you know, uh, it, it's uh, five times further than the distance of the moon. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not an immediate link, yeah. right? I mean, it, you know, it travels at the speed of light, so, you know, there is a back and forth. Um, however, you know, it doesn't have to move super fast, 
right? So we, you know, we can send up uh, a communication and then get down uh, the information back. And that whole loop, um, the time frame isn't as important because we're going to be looking at objects for a long time. So, you know, it's not like where, you know, perhaps a robot on Mars where, where you're going to have to make very quick alterations. Uh, in just a few seconds, Mackenzie, what are you most excited to learn from James Webb? Oh, you know, I'm really excited to learn about, uh, you know, the habitability of extrasolar planets. That's, uh, a, you know, a big interest of mine. But honestly, it's always going to be about the questions we don't even know how to ask yet, mm. right? All of the things that are just completely new to us. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mackenzie Listrup is General Manager of Civil Space at Ball Aerospace in Broomfield. Ball built the optical system for the James Webb Space Telescope, which launches as soon as next week from a European spaceport in French Guiana. It will take 30 days for Webb to reach its solar orbit and then months for it to unfurl, calibrate, and finally send pictures. The telescope's namesake, James Webb, ran NASA during the first Apollo missions and created a vision for the space agency that would include not just moon missions, but wider exploration and science. NASA rejected a campaign to remove his name from the telescope because of early discrimination against gays and lesbians at the space agency. While we're telling you what's in a name, Hubble was Edwin Hubble, who revolutionized astronomy by discovering countless galaxies outside our own Milky Way. His work also led to our understanding that the universe expands. Colorado is minting another astronaut who might one day walk on the moon. Air Force Major Nicole Ayers is one of 10 people in NASA's newest class of candidates, selected from an applicant pool of, wait for it, 12,000. She's from Divide near Colorado Springs and attended the Air Force Academy. Major Ayers, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, excited to join the NASA team and talk about it with you guys. You are a fighter pilot with more than 200 combat hours and one of the few women flying the F-22 Raptor. What about that experience will make you a good astronaut, do you think? I like to say I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? There have been women who have been flying fighters for years, uh, and they've really paved the way for me. But I, I think the biggest part about being a fighter pilot is being part of a team. I don't go anywhere without at least an element mate, you know, or a four ship of jets flying together. That's how we employ the Raptors. So, you know, I think being part of a team is what I'm most excited about here as well. Now, I, I feel like I joined and I now have nine of my new best friends here. These are amazing humans that just got selected for the next NASA astronaut candidate class. And I can't wait to get to know everybody here as well. So, you know, some of the other folks in the class with you, some of these other 10. I met them a few days ago okay. <laughs> and I went through the interview process with a couple of them as well. You speak Russian, which I have to think is handy on the International Space Station in particular. Was that on your mind when you started studying Russian? Yeah, so I, I, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and I've always had an affinity for space and for flying in the sky. And so as a very serious young kid, I, I set my sights on going to the Air Force Academy and then 
there I was fortunate enough to have the chance to study Russian and actually minor in Russian. And, you know, I, I was able to spend a semester abroad in Ukraine and get to learn the language and the culture and, you know, just fell in love with the language. And so, you know, naturally, as you know, NASA works very closely with Russia and other international partners uh, on the ISS. So, yeah, I, I can imagine, I think uh, I'm looking forward to helping my classmates learn a tough language as well. I'm a language nerd, so I'm curious if you have a favorite Russian word or turn of phrase. Oh, boy. You know, Russian is a very technical language, um, and a lot of the words have multiple syllables. The way they say hello is zdrasvutye, and it's like four syllables. So I think that was one of the most fascinating parts about learning. You know, the first word I ever learned was like four syllables long. So <laughs> uh, looking forward to saying that on the ISS to the, the our Russian partners. You mentioned that you have wanted to be an astronaut since you were little. Describe your childhood bedroom for me. I mean, were there models or stars or, you know, trimmings of that that dream? Yeah, you know, so as much as my parents would let me, you know, put things on the walls and paint the walls and stuff, uh, I think my favorite memory is, you know, putting the the little glow-in-the-dark stars up on the ceiling. I think that's, you know, I, I, I loved astronomy and I loved the stars as a little kid. How do you think you were first exposed to the idea of a career as an astronaut? You know, I, I think uh, in fourth grade, we took a field trip to space camp. Uh, and I think that really like sealed the deal for me. You know, I, I got to see all, everything and got to see all the systems and the, the training that they go through. And I fell in love even more. You know, I, I had this affinity for space and the stars and flying and, and that really sealed the deal. And so serious little Nicole started to set her sights on trying to get to the Air Force Academy and trying to become a pilot. And I worked really hard from there to try to get to my goal. And that's why I like to tell people a little bit of hard work and teamwork and you'll get anywhere you want to go in life. And so from fourth grade on, I think I had my goals set. You you talk about teamwork there. So that's obviously a theme for you. You attended Mm -hmm. Woodland Park High School. Is there a person there that inspired you? Oh, boy. Uh, to name one would be tough, I think. You know, I'd, I've had a, a ton of coaches growing up that have been influential in my life, like middle school volleyball coaches to like high school volleyball coaches. So I don't know if I could just name the one human that, that inspired me. You know, Mike Garcia is from the Springs, actually played middle school volleyball for him. And then Vicky Cusimano was my high school coach. But Mindy Wiley is still in Woodland Park, still coaching there. You know, there's so many great names and so many mentors uh, you know, Nicole Brigins is there. You know, if I could just name drop all my, all my <laughs> high school coaches and middle school coaches. But, uh, you know, I've had so many influential mentors in my life, especially on the, the sports side. And I think that's what's kind of made me successful is being part of a team and, and grasping onto those mentors. Yeah, there's that teamwork word again. And I think of that yeah. so, so much with volleyball, right? I mean, mm-hmm. talk about an interconnected uh, group of athletes. OK, space station, moon. Or Mars, what would be top on your list? Oh, man, whatever NASA wants to send me to do, I will be happy to do it. Uh, you know, I, I can't wait to be a part of the mission here at NASA. Um, you know, we've got a constant presence on the space station doing science there to further humanity. But then also, you know, with the Artemis program now standing up and trying to get a more permanent uh, spot on the moon so we can learn to live long term in space and then use those lessons learned and and get to Mars and further off into the universe, you know, uh, I am excited about it all. So I would love to do any one of those missions. Okay. For the record, though, you don't have a favorite destination, (laughs) I guess. It was a very politic answer. Um, if (laughs) If the trip were one way to Mars, would you sign up? Ooh, 
you know, NASA doesn't do one-way missions. Um, NASA is all about bringing us home and all about keeping us safe. Uh, so thankfully, I don't think I have to answer that question in my <laughs> in my career. You know, family is important to me, and it's important to NASA as well to keep their family members safe. So uh, that's, okay. I think I'll give you another political answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you, I guess you at least you know it and acknowledge it. Uh, space travel is risky. Uh, I mean, certainly being a fighter pilot is as well. And it makes me wonder if anything scares you. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, I, I'm actually afraid of man-made heights. Um, oh, man- <laughs> that's my like, biggest weakness. Yeah, you know, things that could break. You know, it's funny because people, people are like, you're a pilot, you fly. But, you know, we always have a safety net. So there are some things, you know, where there's no safety net. But luckily, I don't have to worry about any of that here. What what do you mean man-made heights? Do you just mean like being on top of a tall building? Yeah. Yeah. Just like tall towers or, you know, like things where you could fall off or things that can break. You know, that's my, my yeah. we- one of my weaknesses. <laughs> well, in a way, it sounds like a fear of a lack of control, right? Because you're in control as a fighter pilot, but you're kind of left to someone else's control if you're on top of a building or something that might fall. I guess lack of a safety net, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, every, everywhere that I've gone, I've always had a safety net. You know, I know that NASA ensures that we always have a safety net here as well um, in any mission that we do. So looking forward to that as well. <laughs> in just the last few minutes here, you're about to start two years of training before you officially graduate as an astronaut. What are you most excited to study? Uh, you know, the F-22 pilot in me wants to say the T-38. Uh, so we get to learn how to fly the T-38. Um, I formerly flew the T-38A model, and these are updated versions. So excited to get back there. But And what's a T-38? Help me understand that. Yeah, so the T-38 is a, it's a two-seat jet airplane. It's got two jet engines in it. And the Air Force actually uses it for pilot training. So it is a jet aircraft that NASA uses to put us kind of in those extreme environments and learn to work together, you know, that kind of crew coordination aspect of it. So I think looking forward to that most because I get to share my love of flying with my classmates, but then also get to know my classmates while we're both in the jet flying together. You know, we also get to learn about the space station systems, you know, get to learn about robotics, uh, the Russian language, like you mentioned, and then also spacewalking. So it's it's going to be a fun two years getting to know everybody as we go through that. Nicole, thanks so much. What What is goodbye in Russian? I should know this. Dasvidanya. Dasvidanya, of course. Thank yeah. you so much. Dasvidanya. <laughs> Thank you. Nicole Ayers of Divide Colorado was selected for the newest astronaut class. Now begins a two-year training program. NASA's last class of astronauts announced in 2017 included two Coloradans, Matthew Dominic of Wheat Ridge and Jessica Watkins of Lafayette. This spring, Watkins becomes the first black woman to serve on the International Space Station. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how everyday life changes when you can't afford where you live. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Hi, I'm Grace Hanover, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I had this wonderful old Volkswagen Jetta. When the transmission went out, I knew it wasn't worth investing the resources into fixing the car, and I wanted it to have a meaningful life afterward. So knowing that it would be doing good sort of out in the world, even if I couldn't use it, was part of my thinking in terms of donating it to CPR. It's super easy to donate your car at CPR.org. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Housing in Colorado was unaffordable even before the pandemic, but COVID's economic ravages have only exacerbated things, which is why CPR News launched a special series to share the stories of people struggling with housing instability. The editors of that series are Allison Borden and Obed Manuel. Thank you both for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan, thanks so much for having us. There's really no sign that the cost of a place to live is going to level out. And that puts a lot of people inches away from homelessness. You found that that is true in cities and in rural Colorado. I don't know. Name something that has surprised you in this reporting. Well, I think I never realized how difficult it would be to actually find some of these people in the population that we were looking for. We set out to find people who were really on the brink of homelessness, not living on the streets, the very visible homeless that Mm. we see sometimes here in Denver and in other places of Colorado, but the people who were living on couches, living in hotels. How did you wind up identifying some of them? Well, a lot of I mean, a lot of our reporters went through programs that have been set up, for instance, the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative for people who are sleeping in their cars, programs in Grand Junction. But that presented its own challenge that the programs that we were sending our reporters out to cover didn't encapsulate this entire population. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of gaps that we had to continue to report on. I wonder if complicating matters is stigma, Obed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, One of the things that the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless told us is that oftentimes people who need the help either don't realize that they need it or they may be a little too proud in in asking for it. So, you know, that's an easy way to miss people. And uh, perhaps they wouldn't be comfortable also going on the radio and talking about it. Exactly. Uh Tell us more about the framing for this series. One thing that we really set out to find was the path that leads people to being unhoused, how they actually get there. And not a lot of people wanted to talk about it because of that stigma you had just mentioned. Um, This is not a monolithic group. Being housing insecure cuts across a lot of categories and a lot of labels in Colorado. Why don't we talk about Mitchell Robertson? Sure. So our reporter, Sarah Mulholland, found them using the safe parking initiative, parking his car. So this is for folks who sleep overnights in their cars not to be vulnerable in just some random parking lot. Correct. They they set aside these parking lots that have security and some social workers that work with the people who are there. Mm. But it's a safe place for people to park who are living in their cars to park and feel safe. But what Robertson really showed us was that it's easy to get stuck. If I didn't have to spend money on gas and insurance and phone bill and everything, because I still have bills, you know, still function in this society with everything I have to pay for. You alluded to this, Allison, the idea that this is a problem people from many different walks of life are experiencing. Do you want to say a few more words about that, Obed? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one of the really important things to keep in mind is that issues like this one already tend to affect communities of color even more than the white population, especially during the pandemic when we've seen communities of color be much more affected by illness, but also the financial strain of the pandemic. We found in some cases that there were real barriers to seeking the help or Mm -hmm. getting to the programs uh, like language and technology barriers to apply for assistance. Denverite reporter Esteban Hernandez talked to several 
undocumented immigrants living here who were facing eviction and how hard it was for them to find the help or even know that the help was available to them. You did some basic arithmetic to understand how people are winding up unhoused. And walk me through that, Obed. Yeah, like you just said, here in Colorado, it is definitely a a math problem. Uh, We have a shrinking supply of affordable housing for people who are making about $45,000 or less. And then higher end uh, units are coming onto the market. So if your wages haven't increased to keep up with the market, then you're going to find yourself strained. This is exemplified, I think, in a story from the Western Slope. Indeed, yeah. Uh, Stina Sieg reported on the Golden Girls Project, which caters to older women whose fixed incomes just aren't keeping up with the rising cost of living there. Uh, one woman, Cindy Maney, found herself homeless and unable to stay at a shelter all day. She was often sunburnt from having to be outside. But at the Golden Girls, she found a home. These places are a lifesaver. More, please, more for people. Back to this equation that just doesn't add up. A lot of it does come down to how much funding these programs get and whether or not they're successful. For instance, a homeless shelter in Greeley was considered very successful by the people who ran it, by the people who lived there to protect them against COVID-19. And it's closing at the end of this month because the funds just aren't there. And that leaves residents like Rosie Rutherford in a lurch. As a disabled veteran, I've been homeless off and on for about 20 years. This place is one of the very nicest places I've ever been in as a homeless person, and I've been in a lot. Why on earth would you want to shut down the only thing that's working? You say at CPR.org, quoting here, more people are resorting to extreme measures to make ends meet while housing costs in Colorado continue to climb. There was one story in this series that really exemplified extreme measures, Allison. Yeah. Our Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce, was driving around Park County with the sheriff. And that county is definitely a picture of extremes where you've got really expensive houses and fair play and then just large swaths of empty land. And that land is very cheap. So he was driving with the sheriff and found a guy come out of basically a hole on the hillside and stopped to talk to him. Jim McKinney had dug this hole, intending it to be his driveway, and ended up having to make a makeshift home there while he was navigating building permits and the cost of construction materials. And that's where he is living. In essentially a dugout. In a dugout. A lot of people are out here solely because of the fact that they're broke. They can't afford anything else. You can't afford to to live in fair play. You can't afford to live in Buena Vista. We've heard so far from single folks, but this is also an issue that affects whole families. Right. Denverites Esteban Hernandez found an apartment complex in the northern Denver suburbs where people were facing eviction. And these were families, single mothers with three children, pregnant women who were getting eviction notices on their doors. And they had the added pressure of being undocumented immigrants that really creates barriers for them getting help. But there are places that are specifically assisting. For instance, the United for a New Economy is helping these women 
gain rental assistance so that they can stay in their homes for themselves and for the small children they're caring for. We never knew, like, we could get the help since, like, we're not from here. And what more did you learn about what help looks like? I think people right now are reaching out for help wherever they can find it. Yes, there is a collection of organizations that are focused on helping homeless people and people who are at risk of becoming homeless. But there's also groups whose focus isn't necessarily working on these issues. Uh, For example, there's Lake County Build a Generation, which uh, helped organize a group of mobile home residents who were trying to buy their homes from their landlord, as CPR's Andrew Kenny reported. The idea there is to make them less vulnerable to eviction, for instance. Right, exactly. I want to add that Andy's story looked at both the success of help and the failure of programs like that. Leadville is successfully Mm -hmm. creating a community that owns the land in which their mobile homes are on. But Andy Kenny was there for the failure of a plan to buy the land in a Fort Collins mobile home park. What was behind that failure? The offer that the residents had put together for the landowner was outbid by a corporation that ended up buying the land and they can charge whatever they want to rent on that land. It will be whatever it is. There's, you don't have a lot of options. They'll come in, they'll tell you what they want to do and, you know, business is business. You know that they're in it to make money. And so whatever they do here will be to make money. Hearing you both talk, I can imagine being in a situation of housing instability and wondering where to start, who to turn to. Exactly. And so what we've done is we've compiled a list of statewide resources and the names of these organizations that we came across. So you can find those on CPR.org. What is next in terms of housing policy and programs? What kind of news is moving on this? Well, the state created a task force last year and gave it $400 million in coronavirus relief money. And they're trying to decide what to do and how to help housing instability. They're relying a lot on loan funds, things that offer loans to people for rental assistance, which still creates those barriers that we were talking about earlier for some people who do need the help. I suppose part of what this task force will assess is whether these local programs uh, deserve some of those funds. Right. Uh, They're trying to decide which organizations to give the money to, if it goes directly to individuals for rental assistance. Everything is on the table for that $400 million right now. Uh, You know, Ryan, a lot of people on the ground who work with homeless folks are looking at this $400 million uh, as a once in a generation opportunity to solve a lot of housing issues. Uh, Whether or not it'll be enough is yet to be seen. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, Ryan, thank you for having us. CPR editors Allison Borden and Obed Manuel read our special report on housing insecurity at CPR.org. They are certainly better than coal, arguably better than socks. Books make great holiday gifts. And we have recommendations now from two Colorado book slingers, John Cameron of Salida Books and Nicole Sullivan of Book Bar and The Bookies in Denver. They are on with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. And Nicole, welcome to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
all of your book choices connect to Colorado and or the West. And Nicole, let's start with a novel. You've chosen My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. What is this book about? Uh, so this book is, uh, it's kind of a love letter to um, to horror. And for those of us who grew up watching horror movies, we know that um, often the uh, sort of last girl standing is is usually a good, a good girl. Um, in this case, it's not necessarily a good girl, uh, not to give anything away, but it just kind of turns that, um, that typical theme on its head and um, presents a character that is very unique and lovable, but also um, sort of a problem child. And, um, you know, this novel, if you're, if you're at all into horror, and even if you're not, it's just, it's a fun read um, in the way that only Stephen Graham Jones can uh, make horror fun and humorous and um, also literary, literary. So it's very enjoyable. Okay, so that's a novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. And John, you chose Black Sun for a novel. It's by Rebecca Roanhorse. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so Rebecca Roanhorse is a, a writer from New Mexico, and this is her first attempt at doing kind of high fantasy. It's the first book in the Between Earth and Sky trilogy. And what it is, is it draws a lot on like pre-contact American societies in this fictional fantasy world. And it's something that's really different and, and unique. And she has this ability to build out this incredible world that I haven't really seen before. And I don't read a whole lot of fantasy, but this one totally got me hooked on, on the genre. And I would say that kind of in its most simplest terms, it's kind of a sea voyage story, you know, where they're crossing an ocean. Um, but there's a lot of political intrigue and a whole bunch of kind of world-ending forces also at play. Okay, so that's Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. Uh, she is a woman of indigenous descent from New Mexico. And Nicole, your nonfiction choice is a book called The Holly by Julian Rubinstein. Explain what this book is about. So this book explores... Um, the history of a particular neighborhood in Denver, uh, referred to as the Holly. Um, and there's a lot of history here in this neighborhood uh, that goes back to, you know, 1968 uh, shooting that happened there in the neighborhood up to present day um, gentrification. And um, it explores gang warfare in the area and um, is particularly centered on Terrence Roberts, who is a um, an activist, an anti-gang activist, and how he got caught up in um, in more recent events and how complicated this history is in this 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 fight to um, you know take a neighborhood back from from violence and how it's just so much more complicated and the history is so much more entangled than um, at first glance. I actually read this book and I interviewed Rubenstein in May, and he told us about the very interesting history of the neighborhood known as the Holly. It's in Northeast Denver. First, it was a white neighborhood. Then it became integrated. Then it became an almost entirely black neighborhood. And it was also the center of Denver's civil rights movement, where in 1968, uh, a police shooting took place that really sparked and kicked the civil rights movement in Denver into another higher level with a lot of protests and actions. 
And it's interesting that after the civil rights movement and the takedown, really, this happened nationally, of civil rights leaders, it left a lot of these communities without leadership and falling into less opportunity, poverty, drugs, and gangs. And sure enough, exactly that happened to the Holly. And Nicole, what made you pick this particular book? Um, I think it's important to know our history, especially the history of where you live and especially history that hasn't um, gotten the sort of um, uh, the telling that it that it should have gotten. And thanks to uh, Julian Rubinstein, it, it now has. Um, but it's it's just important to know about, um, you know, not just the typical Western history that we often hear, but um, the history of our own communities and um, history that's not always very pretty. And John, let's go to you now for a nonfiction choice. It's called Mm -hmm. Powder Days by Heather Hansman. Tell us about this one. So this is a perfect kind of ski story. Heather Hansman um, writes a lot about the West and she starts right away with some of her experience um, working at as a ski patroller at Rapaho Basin. And so that's where the story opens up. It's part memoir, part road trip story, but it really dives into a lot of the changes that are happening in the snow sports and the ski industry that we've seen in the last few years and would expect to see in the future. Okay, that book is Powder Days by Heather Hansman. And John, I'm going to go right back to you for another recommendation. Like the last one, it seems to have a connection to the outdoors, and it has an unusual name, Fuzz. It's by author Mary Roach. What is this one about? So Mary Roach is a science writer, and she takes on a lot of really uncomfortable subjects, but she's really funny about it. And Fuzz is particularly a book about kind of the urban wildlife interface where humans and animals start to interact. And it's a kind of a big problem in a lot of our urban areas that back right up to wilderness places. She starts at the very beginning of the story talking about um, the mall cops, the people that are out investigating incidents where animals and people have, have interacted. And she reminds everybody that you're more likely to die in a file cabinet accident than a cougar attack. Okay. That's Fuzz by Mary Roach. And Nicole, you brought a cookbook from an iconic Colorado restaurant, the Fort Restaurant. It's in Morrison, Colorado, just outside of Denver. And what do you like about this cookbook? Um, Again, I like like history. So uh, this book encompasses history as well as um, foods of the old west and particularly foods that have been served at the fort restaurant um and the fort itself has a a long and interesting history um i'm always very interested in foods uh from you know that are kind of more or less historic but with a new twist and um holly arnold kenny does a great job of that so is there a recipe for rocky mountain oysters in it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, you know what? I don't have the cookbook right in front of me, but if you go to their website, there certainly is. And, and Holly tells a, a great story about um, shucking the Rocky Mountain oysters as a kid and not giving it a second thought. But um, I, I love to cook, but I can tell you I won't be making these anytime soon. 
So the cookbook's called The Fort Restaurant Cookbook. The author is Holly Arnold Kinney. Um, you each have a children's book to tell us about. John, yours is called We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom. It's illustrated by Michaela Goad. It sounds like this one has an environmental theme as well. Is that right? It does. And this one is directly inspired by the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. And it follows the story of a young girl who's a water protector, and it really dives into the importance and the relevance that water has for not only um, us in the West, but just kind of people in, in general. And the best part about this book are the illustrations, because each one of the pages you could you could hang on the wall. It's a beautifully illustrated book. It's bright and it's vibrant, and um, it has a, a good amount of history in the back. The last portion of the book is about the water protectors and a lot of the issues that they're facing in the West. And when you say the girl is a water protector, what do you mean exactly? It follows the story of an indigenous girl growing up and being introduced to some of the challenges that she's going to be facing. So that book is We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom. It's illustrated by Michaela Goad. And Nicole, your choice for a children's book is called Reed Island. It's by Nicole Magistro. She used to own the Bookworm of Edwards bookstore. And Nicole's been part of this segment several times in the past, recommending books. Uh, now she has one of her own. I understand there's a backstory to this book. What is that? <laughs> So, um, yeah, first of all, Nicole, I met her um, as a bookseller and um, she has been one of my bookselling mentors throughout the years. So I'm so happy to be able to present her own book. Um, and the backstory is that Reed Island is actually a real place um, where Nicole and her family have visited for many years. And um, during the pandemic, uh, she and her son used to sit and uh, meditate you know, just to kind of help calm their their fears and their anxieties that we were all having and still have. Um, and what they discovered is that they were meditating and visualizing the same place, which is the, this beloved Reed Island. And um, Nicole's imagination just took it from there and turned it into a, a magical island that's made of books. And there are, you know, furry, sweet, adorable woodland creatures that live there and they um, they tell stories and I can't imagine anything lovelier and more calming than that during a pandemic. That's Reed Island by Nicole Magistro and thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That's my colleague Andrea Dukakis speaking with Nicole Sullivan, owner of Book Bar and the Bookies in Denver and John Cameron, owner of Salida Books. Finally today, a new holiday tune, courtesy of Denver's own The Lumineers. Oh, how laughter you make us bastards Feel some kind of joy Like a golden token we find we're not broken Like some cheap little toys This is Life Merry Christmas also features Boulder musician Daniel Rodriguez, who actually wrote this song, it came together at a dinner party hosted by Lumineer Wesley Schultz. Rodriguez says the new track is based on one of his existing songs, simply called This Is Life. That song came over their speakers in the backyard. Things can get so bad, I know, but things could always be worse. 
And uh, Brandy, Wes's wife, said, uh, every time I hear this song, Dan, and right as soon as she said that, Wes was like giving her this signal, please don't follow through with what you're saying, because he thought it would be insulting. But she said, uh, every time I've heard this song, I've heard Merry Christmas in the chorus. I was like, well, that's not a terrible idea. I've always felt like there was a little bit of too much space in the chorus, which the chorus is just... This is life. This is life. And I was like, oh, I don't, it, is the space good or it, it, should there be something there? And I don't know, she kind of nailed it, I guess. This is life, this is life, Merry Christmas. This is life, this is life, Merry Christmas. In the spirit of giving, Rodriguez shared songwriting credit with Brandy Schultz on the Merry Christmas version. The track is trending at the top of his Spotify page, which he has mixed emotions about. It's a blessing and maybe a curse, but it's kind of funny to be like, oh, no, my most popular song is a Christmas song, which isn't terrible. I think it's quite an honor to be looped in with the Lumineers. Things could get so bad, I know, but things could always be worse. There's a blessing tucked inside of each and every curse. You could be a selfish fool, but somehow not be selfish enough. Your glass could be half full, but you've already drank way too much. This is life. This is life. Merry Christmas. This is life. The Lumineers with Boulder's Daniel Rodriguez and their new holiday tune, This Is Life, Merry Christmas. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that's on Santa's nice list. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Merry Christmas. This is life. This is life. Merry Christmas.